Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to today's program here on New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and as always, I'm so glad that you've decided to join us. Of course, Saturdays is an opportunity to talk about gardening here in Northeast Georgia, right here on WRWH 93.9 FM. Of course, you can find this show every morning at 10 a.m., and if you decide to sleep in and you can't uh, wake up in time, that's okay because you can also hear the show at 8 o'clock in the evening on Saturday, 8 p.m. So join us for a rebroadcast of today's program later today. Or maybe, you know, you just love the discussion and you didn't make notes. You want to start making notes so you can join us in the evening. But you can always find uh, the show after it airs here online at NewSouthernGarden.com. We've got every episode of the program we've ever had there. We're pushing into like five years, getting close. So, of course, um, there's a ton of information on the website as far as our shows go. and uh, I try to have each show be sort of topical. So if, you look in, if you're looking back and you've got a certain issue in your landscape, you might find that I address some of those issues on some of the programs but at the end of the month this is the last Saturday of the month we do address your issues directly because you've been sending us questions and you have been filling our mailbox and emails all of that stuff Facebook and Instagram and I know as we get closer to spring you're probably going to have even more questions so (laughs) feel free to do that at NewSouthernGarden.com and on our Facebook and Instagram page. But of course, since we are answering your questions, we've got a great question for today. We've got a really good question that, I, thinking back, we haven't really talked much about. And this question comes from Zach here in uh, Northeast Georgia. And he's, he's, I'll summarize what he says here. But he says that over winter, he's noticed some areas of his landscape are retaining water probably causing wet soil there and he wonders what kind of plants he could put in wet boggy sites and so thinking back we've never really directly addressed uh, boggy sites we've probably mentioned a few plants here and there but we've never really done an entire program on it so I think today we will answer Zach's question and we do appreciate you sending that in and for all you other folks who sent them in we'll try to get to your questions in the upcoming weeks however um, I would like to expand upon what Zach's direct question is and go through a discussion on building a rain garden so where Zach just sort of naturally he's got this wet soil that doesn't drain well 
you can create areas that do the same thing. You think, why would you do that? Well, we're going to talk about the benefits of having a rain garden where we're actually harboring water and hopefully slowly letting it leach back in, percolate back into the soil. And these rain gardens do a very good job at filtering out pollutants as well. So, you know, uh, the water that runs off your driveway, if you had a little oil leak, well, that water is going to go into the landscape with the oil. But these rain gardens can trap that. And of course, uh, there's some things that go on in the rain garden to help break down uh, pollutants before they enter into our waterways and our, our fresh streams. So it's a very ecological style of gardening, rain gardening, and they don't take up much space. So uh, for some areas near a drain or a, a, a downspout where <laughs> water's coming off the, the roof of the house, what do you do with all that water? Well, sometimes we attach those corrugated black plastic pipes and move the water just to the edge of the property and let it flow uh, down downhill. Uh, but you can actually harness some of this water. And of course, that will also improve uh, the conditions of your soil around your immediate growing area. So today we're talking about bog plants, uh, plants that don't mind having a little wet feet. And we are going to talk about building a rain gardens, the benefits to them. And then, of course, uh, plants that you can put in there uh, to create a beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, display in your rain garden. Last week, we talked about something that's very timely. And if you love roses, if, if you love a variety of roses, you definitely want to check out last week's program because we talked all about uh, finding, sourcing, uh, receiving, per, well, purchasing, receiving plants in the mail even, of bare root roses. And this is really a great time to continue to plant bare root roses while we're going into the later part of winter. The ground is still warm. And of course, anything that is shipped to you without soil around it uh, has some special considerations and some special needs so that those roots don't dry out. And we go through all of that and how to plant them appropriately because it's not exactly like planting a plant from a container. And so you do have some other considerations to, uh, to ponder about uh, before you actually purchase these roses. But bare root roses is a great way to get a variety because I still think that growing and, and gardening in the 21st century is really has been the best time to garden and grow because we have so many resources and with the advent of the internet and catalogs, we can send off uh, for purchases. They come to us and we have a wider variety of plants to choose from because we have a wider variety of growers to purchase from. And so if you are interested in bare root roses and getting some things looking awesome in the landscape for spring, and of course many roses will bloom through summer, giving you great display and great show, uh, be sure to check out last week's program at NewSouthernGarden.com or any of your favorite podcasting apps on your smart device. So uh, to answer Zach's question, again, to summarize, uh, Zach has realized that over winter, he has these really wet areas. Uh, they don't seem to drain very well, or they drain slowly, poorly. And what kind of plants, this is real question, what kind of plants can I plant in those sites that are going to survive having wet feet? So sites like this, we do consider sort of boggy sites, um, sites of wet soil. And uh, let's see. Over the winter, over the winter is when you're really going to find what areas in your landscape don't drain very well. So ideally, for an average, uh, well, for an average garden soil, 
we want to make sure that things drain well, that the soil doesn't stay too dry, but that it doesn't stay too wet. Moist soil is always appropriate, but wet soil is not. And one way to determine if you have wet soil is to dig a hole in this planting site, the area you're uh, concerned with, Dig a hole that's maybe 8 to 10 inches deep, so it's not a super deep hole, maybe just about uh, the depth of a shovel, a spade, and remove that soil, fill the hole with water, and then time how slowly or how quickly that water drains from the hole. If the water drains from that hole within 24 hours, then that is a decent draining uh, soil, a decent draining site. But if the water stays in the hole for longer than 24 hours, then you have poor draining soil. And in some cases, like just driving back and forth from the house to the nursery uh, and all over town, I see some, some fields even, um, some areas in fields, large fields, where water is still standing on top of the ground even two or three days after our last rain. Over winter, uh, we essentially get the most rain that we possibly could. Of course, we need the rain in the middle of summer here in the southeast, uh, but we tend to get heavy rain over winter. And this past week is a great testament to that fact because it was raining on Monday, uh, Sunday, and then we had a couple of days that was nice and, and no rain. And then Wednesday, another heavy, heavy downpour, at least where I am. And so you see, we have these short intervals in between rain events in the winter. But in the summertime, we have these long intervals usually between a, a rain event, a, a storm, um, a thunderstorm, whatever. And so wintertime is really when we want to be concerned about poor draining soils. So even in the summer, if a site seems to drain well or, or doesn't have standing water at least, we may want to consider what the water is like in the winter because when the, the soil is, is cooler, still, still warmer than the air temperature, but when the soil is cooler in the winter with that extra water, that's where some plants that don't like wet feet are going to start to decline or maybe just uh, completely die. And so, yes, spring, it's exciting, and summer, it's warm, and we want to be outside, but always take an, um, take an assessment of your site over winter when it comes to drainage and how well a site is moving water. So again, over winter, we get more, we get, uh, it's, it's our wet season, it's our wet season, so we get a lot of rain. And so now is a great time to go ahead and assess your sites and see uh, if there's some problem areas as far as drainage goes. And Zach, uh, who's asking the question this morning, he has noticed that. So we're going to take this question and we're going to answer it because his question is about what kind of plants can go in that site. But I would like to uh, start talking about how to build a rain garden, the benefits of a rain garden. Why would we even want to create a rain garden in our landscape? Because we're intentionally trying to sort of capture water and hold on to it for a short period of time before it leaches back into the landscape or into the uh, stormwater drains in your neighborhood. So with all that being said, let's talk about what happens uh, when rain falls on the ground in certain areas. First of all, if we talk about a forest, an undisturbed site, if we talk about an undisturbed site, uh, places where there's no houses, places where there's no businesses and uh, other buildings, roads, driveways, things like that, we see that in its natural form, <laughs> a forest or a field or meadow, 
will allow maybe 50% of a rainfall, the water that falls during a rain event, about 50% will percolate into the soil. And only about 10% or so will run off of the soil. Then, if we go to a city where there's a lot of concrete, there's a lot of steel buildings, a lot of block buildings, a lot of uh, structure, a lot of impervious surfaces. We'll talk about that in a second. But if we go to a developed site, even a residential neighborhood where there's a lot of roof, where there's a lot of driveway, a lot of road, a lot of pathway, um, surfaces that don't allow water to penetrate through them, they just run off. We see that the runoff increases to 55% rather than 10% and only maybe 15% is allowed to percolate into the soil. That's a big difference, folks. It's about flip-flopped. In the woods, in an undisturbed, undeveloped site, uh, 50% of the water drains and 10% runs off. Where it's almost flipped and about 50% runs off in a city or in a neighborhood and 15% actually percolates into the soil. So what we see in developed areas, development does impact the water cycle because ideally we would have that situation where most of the water is allowed to percolate into the soil and only a small percentage allowed to run off the top. But in a residential home situation, or of course, uh, in a big city, big time, most of the water is running off the top of the soil, off the top of the earth, and only a small percent is seeping and percolating into the ground. The biggest, uh, biggest culprit of this heavy increased runoff is a word I've already used. It's impervious surfaces. And impervious surfaces are things that either impede or prevent infiltration of water into the soil. So, of course, I've already mentioned some. Concrete and asphalt. Water hits that impervious surface, runs off, and is not allowed to infiltrate into the soil. Now, of course, this does sort of prevent these impervious surfaces, sort of prevents a natural processing of pollutants in the soil and uh, through plant material. So plants, um, insects, and then bacteria and fungus can work and break down pollutants before they return in, before the water returns into our natural streams. And so they are our, our first line of defense, if you will, for cleaning up uh Dirty water, polluted water, and of course, pollutants, I've already mentioned, like oils and uh, certain chemicals and whatnot that come from our, our, our businesses, our homes, that can all be helped if we allow water uh, and natural processes to break it down. And of course, um, what this does is impervious services provides a surface of accumulation of these pollutants so you get more and more of them into our waterways when we get back we're going to keep talking about the benefits of building a rain garden in your uh in your own garden hang on tight Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com 
where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone, so get social with the new Southern Garden family and let's grow well. This morning, of course, that's Eden Rose, my three-nager. She's three years old, but she acts like a teenager. And she's encouraging us this morning to give building a rain garden a go. Because before the break, we were talking about all of the impervious surfaces that we've created in our homes, our residential sites, our um, cities and urban spaces. And of course, these impervious surfaces include uh, things like concrete and asphalt and roofs. All of these surfaces that collect water, but don't allow water to fall into the um, natural system. Uh, Rather, uh, allow the water to filter through the soil, if you will. And this, uh, all this runoff is, polluted runoff is the number one water quality problem in the United States. So if we can do some things to clean up our water before the water gets back into the streams and back into the, um, uh, the uh, natural uh, areas where water moves, then that will help our general, you know, uh, quality of, of, of health, of water. I do remember when I was in college, we had an, I had an ecological, what was it called? Uh, introduction to ecology or something like that ecology 101 we'll call it and we had this lab or this um uh, series of uh, ventures into the woods where we tested the water in one stream and tested a water water in another stream so the test sort of looked like us going down into a stream that was considered an urban stream. It ran through the city, and we tested the water there, uh, looked for biological life, little creatures in the uh, water, and and how many uh, we found in a given space. And we did the same test over in a more natural stream where water and runoff from a city or urban area would not be a problem. And it was amazing because I do remember that our findings uh, were that the streams in the natural areas that didn't get the runoff from all these impervious surfaces was much cleaner and there was more life in those streams. So creating a water garden is one way that you and I, as small as our homes and gardens may be, uh, can help to improve the quality of our water. Some of the pollutants that we find in streams from urban and developed land include nutrients, so fertilizers that we use do make their way into the streams, things that the, don't, the plants don't pick up, some of the nitri- nitrogen, some of the phosphorus that the plants don't use does make its way into streams. Pathogens, so disease uh, issues, sediment, so disturbed sites where we've turned the soil over or where a construction company is building some of those sediments will make their way into the streams and of course there's some protocols and some uh, government codes and regulations on how to prevent that from happening Uh, toxic contaminants other debris and of course thermal stress thermal stress is where water may be warmer And they consider that a pollutant. In that stream back in college that we visited that was in an urban site, there was less trees, there was less uh, uh, canopy covering the stream. So those, the temperatures in the urban waterways 
were much higher by many degrees. And of course, thermal stress can bother some of the creatures that are in our waterways. So what are some of the um, traditional approaches? Some of the traditional approaches, approaches to dealing with water, say off of our houses, was to collect, to concentrate, and then to convey or to send things out. So um, you'll notice that in some cases, maybe your neighborhood, there is a detention pond or a retention pond. And that's where the water in your neighborhood is being collected off the roads usually, uh, and it's being routed into this large hole in the ground, which is not a natural occurring lake or pond, but this retention or detention pond is a place where the, the extra water off of your roof, the extra water off of the road in your neighborhood is being put. And that is pretty much a code now. We have, of course, at the nursery, uh, we don't have much impervious surfaces. We don't have any paved driveways, but the greenhouses have plastic on them, like your house may have shingles. And of course, plastic does not allow water to fall onto the soil. So our water goes into a retention pond. And the concept is very similar to a rain garden where water can be concentrated or collected and then uh, allowed to sit there with biology going on, breaking down any pollutants, any fertilizers or any other contaminants that may have run off of the road. And then the water is allowed to release back in to the um the natural waterway, if you will. Eventually, all water runs downhill, and at the bottom of every hill is some collection of water like a stream or something. So, of course, you know, um, having a um, gutters on your house does is the first is the first place where we start collecting water through a channel. So if we don't have gutters on our house, water just drips off and it does hit the soil. It tends to splash up on the house. Soil uh, particles make things quite dirty um, because they sort of heavy water droplets can explode the soil, if you will, and splattering those things onto the site. But that is the first place where we usually start at the house. Now, some of us take that a step further. We, we take that off of the house through a gutter and into a pipe, like I mentioned in the first segment, that runs off onto maybe the neighbor's property, or maybe it runs toward the road, so the road can collect the water. But what we're trying to do here is instead of just collecting the water and releasing it somewhere else, a rain garden is going to be able to allow the water to percolate into our soil. Now that means that you and I can have more access and our plants in particular, not necessarily you and I, we don't drink it right from the top of the ground, but the plants do. So if we can use the water that the impervious surfaces are collecting, then of course we can release it slowly into our garden spaces and rain gardens can help with that. Of course, if you want to connect a rain barrel uh, to to your roof gutter, uh, that is an appropriate way to capture water. Now, of course, if you're not using that water often, you have a lot of overflow and a rain garden can help deal with that overflow. But the idea is that instead of water running off the top of the soil, we do want water to infiltrate the soil. And the importance of infiltration has several factors. First of all, it helps to preserve natural hydrology. Hydrology is how water moves through the soil. So we're reducing the runoff, reducing flooding, and um, uh, allowing what we call a base flow to be maintained. 
Rather than heavy flows uh, and then low flows, we're looking at sort of a base flow, which is where exactly we want it to be. Now, of course, uh, infiltration into the soil and moving water through the soil profile helps to clean water and, like we've already mentioned, remove those pollutants. And uh, doing, allowing water to infiltrate or doing things that help water infiltrate is an inexpensive way uh, to, to control the quality of water. So there are many reasons why these rain gardens are going to help. So what exactly is a rain garden? It is basically an area that's man-made in the landscape that captures a shallow amount of water and holds it for a short period of time. Those are the two words. Shallow amount of water and short period of time. We're not trying to create a pond. We're not trying to create a water reservoir. <laughs> and we don't want copious amounts of water uh, to be maintained. We're not, we're not creating something that's very deep. When we say shallow, we're talking about something that is near the surface of the soil. And so, in the rain gardens, water runoff is captured, and it's infiltrated into the soil in sort of... Um, a low spot, an indented area where plants and soils will utilize and filter the water out. And of course, a rain garden can be an attractive addition to a landscape because we are going to, at the end of today's program, you're going to see we're going to talk about plants that are beautiful. They bloom, they have beautiful colored foliage, all kinds of things that we're going to put into this rain garden to, uh, to make it beautiful. So the purpose of this rain garden we're going to talk about is capturing the runoff from the impervious areas like roofs, driveways, and patios. And of course, we're going to try to reduce the runoff that's leaving the site. Now, here's a few facts. We've got a, a few seconds here. Here's a few facts that um, about rain gardens. The ponding, ponding or pooling of water should last no more than 48 hours after the rain stops. And the typical depth for a rain garden is from 4 to 12 inches, so not deep, uh, with maybe 6 to 8 inches at a recommendation. This will not increase mosquito numbers. Keep that in mind. And lastly, it's going to attract water-loving critters like frogs, toads, and yes, snakes. But we need all of nature. Hang on tight for more water gardens. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. So, gang, this morning on New Southern Garden, we are talking about the benefits of having a rain garden in your landscape. And also, we're going to talk about, right quickly, right here, uh, how to install it, where to put it, and how to build one. So, of course, the benefits of rain garden. It's sort of, think of a rain garden as like a water barrel that is pretty and in the landscape. <laughs> we're going to talk in a minute about digging a depression creating a berm around the depression and allowing water to collect in that right at the surface of the soil. And of course, over time, that water will be, be caught during a rainstorm and it will be allowed to um, infiltrate into the soil. That's the key word. We're trying to reduce runoff 
water that flows over the top of the soil and we're trying to increase infiltration water being allowed to percolate and drip into the soil if you will so the first thing we want to determine when we're planting our rain garden is where should we locate it well probably one of the most critical things to keep in mind is to keep this rain garden about 10 feet away from a foundation of a building so 10 feet away from the building foundation that's the same recommendation for planting a tree so be sure that your rain garden is not right up against the house 10 feet away you could put it near patios driveways and roads though and really any area where water naturally moves to low areas so if you've got a site that is high and water moves downhill somewhere in between that route is a good space and of course we want to fit it well into the surrounding landscape we don't want it to look like a sore thumb we want it to make sense with your overall garden design so some things to avoid as far as where to put it of course not next to a building not over a septic system and we really don't want to uh, put it where water stands for long periods of time already uh, there's sort of a difference we're not trying to create a bog I didn't explain that clearly maybe when we started we're going to talk about plants that can grow in wet soil uh, but with a rain garden the idea is not to hold the water indefinitely remember we want to hold the water for a short period of time so we may not put this in our naturally boggy wet areas but rather try to get that water to move into our rain garden and of course um, we don't want to put it on the inside of a drip line of any large tree because we are going to be digging and digging in the drip line of a tree uh, underneath the shade of the tree if you will is going to be very rooty and would be causing a lot of damage to the tree and slopes that are steeper than 12 percent we can do this on a slope uh, we can create a rain garden on a slope with some berms, but we don't want to create rain gardens on a slope that is greater uh, than 12%. Now, what about the size of the space? How much of a rain garden do you need? Well, it really determ is determined by the square footage of your impervious surfaces. So we got to pull out the pad and calculator and do some math. But if we can estimate the size of our roofs, um, and of course, we want to section our roofs out based on the downspout that that section of roof utilizes. Uh, of course, at our house, we really only have two sections of roof. We have one pitch in the middle, and it slopes off to the front and slopes off to the back. So we, we have several gutters, uh, at least two on each side. But regardless, we've got to sort of determine the square footage that each gutter, for instance, is going to pull off. Or if you are looking to move water from your driveway, how much square footage you're trying to capture there. Now, once you determine how much square footage of impervious surface you have, that's when we get to estimate the size of the rain garden. And here's the uh, recommendations from the University of Georgia. Sandy soils, if you have a more sandy soil, you need to create a rain garden that is 5 to 8% the size of your impervious surface. If you have clay soils, if you're up here, of course, uh, here in the mountains, <laughs> you want a rain garden that is 10 to 15% of the runoff area. So let's say we have, let's use a number of 1,800 square feet, and we have clay soils. We take 1,800 square feet, and we'll, um, we'll multiply it by the average of 10 to 15, which is, say, 12%. So 
if we've got 1,800 square feet and we want to create a rain garden that is 12% of that runoff size, the rain garden should be about 216 square feet. That's not super huge. That is not super huge. So the reality is, is that these areas, even though we're going to have big areas of runoff, 12% of that should be in the rain garden. 12% of that size should be in the rain garden in a clay soil. So it's not a super huge site, but it is large enough to create a beautiful asset to the landscape. Now, if you have a rain garden that uh, the surface area turns out to be more than 300 square feet, you may consider to break it up into two smaller ones um, rather than making a super huge one. Uh, if we go any larger than 300 square feet, you may have to bring in earth moving equipment because we're about to talk about how we actually construct these. And there is a bit of earth moving. And any larger than 300 square feet may be too much for a shovel, a wheelbarrow, and your back. Now, what should the shape of this space be? So we've got the size, the rough estimate of a size that it should be. But what should the shape be? They're, ra they're rarely going to be square. If you make a square rain garden, it will look very formal, uh, which may go with your style. But um, a perfect circle might work, but usually we sort of make a kidney bean shape, right? So we have a smooth curve on one edge and then a smooth indention curve on the other side. When you place a rain garden on a slope, remember that the long length, if you've got a, a rain garden shape that's longer than it is wide, the long length should run with the contour of the land. So it should be uh, sort of perpendicular to the slope. Now, the shorter length should run parallel with the length of the slope. We do not want to have a long run running down or a long length running down a slope. We would rather the long length cut across uh, the slope. Now, um, the layout of the rain garden, what are some things we may need to consider? Well, we need to think about where excess stormwater will go. Of course, you cannot send your overflow onto your neighbor's property. That's not a good idea. And there may be some local government um, requirements um, when you start disturbing land and start digging. So be sure to check that out for your area. Now, installing the rain garden, now that we know how we're going to place it and how big it should be, we want the bottom of the rain garden to be level. All right. If you're doing this on a slope, it's a lot of digging. But we will be digging out essentially a hole um, and you will have to add a berm to the front of your rain garden if it's on a slope. So on the downhill end of this rain garden, we're creating a berm so that we can level out the slope in the middle of the rain garden. We do want the bottom of the rain garden to be level. So basically, the top berm, if you're on a slope, which most of us are, that's why I'm uh, emphasizing the slope thing, um, the, the top berm uh, should be about the same elevation as the uphill edge of the rain garden. So in other words, uh, where you're starting uphill should be at the same level as the berm you're creating from the soil you're digging out downhill. And that way, it's sort of like creating this Tupperware. It's like a Tupperware bowl that is going to collect and hold on to this water. Now, one concern when we're designing our uh, rain garden is we do need an overflow area. In a heavy rainstorm, some of those 
oh, what do they call them, gully washers <laughs> that we get, you may be generating more rainfall than your rain garden could handle. And really, you may not be able to create a rain garden large enough to create those gully, to hold on to that gully washer rain. So we do want to have an overflow method for heavy storms. What you could do is uh, the you could have a lower area in the berm somewhere so that water can just spill over that berm. But of course, we're going to have to protect the berm so it doesn't get damaged by heavy water flow. Now, some folks will install a drain pipe within the rain garden. So you put a drain pipe in where water can flow through as an overfill protection device, if you will. Now, we need to connect the rain garden with these areas where water collects. So what you can do is create a shallow uh, but wide swell that moves water from your downspout into these areas. Or you can use the corrugated drain pipe like we've talked about before. You probably got some already connected that can carry the water flow from the gutter into the rain garden. Now, if you're using an above ground method like a swell or a uh, a wide shallow swell. You can line the swell with either gravel to prevent erosion or you can lay turf grass down to prevent erosion. Anytime we're moving water across the top, the surface of uh, the soil, we do need to protect that uh, drain system, that pipe system, if you will. There's just no pipe. It's all above ground. But we need to protect that water movement from damaging our soil and causing erosion. Now, installing the rain garden. What you could do is you can lay out a garden hose or some string to get the shape and make your measurements to make sure you're in line with that recommended size uh, as far as UGA has given us. And what you need to do is set aside top, the top uh, four to six inches of soil, which is essentially the top soil. Set that aside, but excavate the hole and then use the topsoil to backfill the planting area. So we're not going to get rid of our topsoil. We're going to utilize that later. But we do move the soil into the rain garden area down the bottom edge of the rain garden. So we want to start packing it in at the bottom. If you're on a slope in particular, wherever the lowest point is, you want to bring um, the soil into the rain garden uh, down to the bottom edge of the rain garden because we're trying to build that berm again. Now, we need to prepare our soil for planting. I didn't mention, but you need to take your um, soil that you're digging in that area. You can have it tested at UGA, uh, your county extension office, and they're going to tell you what the pH is like and what kind of fertilizer you may need to ensure plants are healthy. But of course, um, you can lime it if you need it. If your soil test says to lime the soil, lime it. Uh, you can spread two to four inches of compost, uh, some kind of uh, soil conditioner mix. Um, you can till it into the whole area of the garden so that you can create a nice planting area. And now we are ready for plants. So essentially what we're doing is we're taking um, a, a big chunk of soil out of the ground. We're going to shape it so that if it's on a slope, we create a berm on the low end so we can hold that water in like a, a little trough. And we're going to put topsoil back in the hole that we 
took off the top to start with. We're going to treat the soil just like our uh, county extension office recommends for planting. And now we're going to get into the world of planting. So I know it's sort of a long way around Zach's question from earlier. But again, Zach's question was what plants will work well in wet areas? And so we're going to connect boggy plants with rain garden plants because the nature of these plants is that they can handle long periods of being wet and in the summer, they can also handle long periods of almost being dry, okay? That's the thing about bog sites and rain gardens alike, is that they both hold on to water, but when there is no water, they do tend to get on the dry side. So there are some plants that fit that requirements wonderfully. Um, I know we've got to get to the break here, but I will mention that some of the trees... I don't want to spend too much time on trees, so let me just list you some trees that work well. Of course, bald cypress, number one. It grows in the Okefenokee Swamp. It can handle wet soil and also dry soil. Red maples love to grow along ponds and edges. Crepe myrtle is not too bad uh, if you have a wet uh, site. Uh, service berry, one of my favorite, sweet bay magnolias, and of course, fringe tree. When we get back, we're going to talk about even more plants for wet, boggy gardens and rain gardens. Hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. (laughs) At Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together. So gang, today on New Southern Garden, we are answering Zach's question. This is our Q&A week at the end of every month, of course. We go to the mailbox and we answer your questions. And his question was simply, basically, what kind of plants can I put in a wet soil area? And I've gone the long way around to answer it because we've talked also about building a rain garden in your landscape. We've talked about the importance of rain gardens and how they can help alleviate um extra runoff after a storm water that just rolls off the surface of your roof water that rolls off the surface of your driveway and the roads and pathways and patios Uh, what can we do with that water well we can collect it in a rain garden and of course we can plant that rain garden with beautiful plants so that it looks pretty but it's also very functional because rain gardens allow water to infiltrate the soil rather than run off the top so before the break we were finally getting to uh, answer his question about what plants work well in wet sites and some of these work well in dry sites as well we started with some trees you're familiar with the red maple we mentioned that i didn't mention river birch but that is a great tree for wet sites as well as fairly dry sites fringe tree and service berry are beautiful um, and, and they can handle these wetter soils and i would say that if in your rain garden 
you do have one or a group of ornamental trees, that is one way to connect the rain garden into the surrounding landscape by having an ornamental tree or a small group if the area is suitable. Um, But I do want to talk about some shrubs and some perennial plants that can work well or even ground covers. Let's see, a few of my favorite shrubs that would work here is buttonbush. Buttonbush is a native shrub that actually I have seen growing in Lake Lanier. When the tide is high or when the water level is high at Lake Lanier, these buttonbush grow in the water. They don't have a lick of oxygen below them, but they can handle uh, that condition. And of course, when the soil dries down in the summer, uh, they're a bit more on the bank, but that's a great native plant. This, another great native plant is summer sweet clethra. And clethra um, is actually a wonderful summer bloomer. Pollinators go crazy for it. You can find some beautiful varieties. They come in shades of white and shades of pink, like ruby spice. Ruby spice is one of my favorite clethras, and they have a sweet fragrance when they're blooming. Uh, Wax myrtle is a nice, thick evergreen. Sometimes they get a bit large, but there are some dwarf varieties of wax myrtle out there, and they can handle all of this wet soil we're talking about. Now, uh, Virginia Sweet Spire, that blooms around Mother's Day, uh, right as we are getting into Mother's Day, I guess, and it has these long, draping, pendulous white flowers, and they do have some awesome red fall color, but they don't have a problem with this kind of wet soil area. You probably know beauty bush, uh, sorry, beauty berry, the American beauty berry in particular, and uh, bottle brush buckeye. We've got some of those at uh, Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. I love bottle brush buckeye. Not everybody does, but it does make a beautiful flower in the summer and great yellow fall color. Super coarse textured plant as well. Another evergreen is inkberry. Inkberry is a holly, and it does maintain its foliage through the winter. So you've got to sort of balance your planting in a in this bog area or the rain garden site. Balance it with some things that drop their leaves and have good fall color and also some things that are going to keep their leaves all winter long. Some native azaleas will work too. Uh, Some of these plants, if you have a wet site, uh, some of these plants, you probably need to do a little research, but be sure that you're planting some of these along the edge or the margin of a wet site or the rain garden because some of them, even though they can handle periods of of wet, they may want to dry out some. And the marginal zone around the edge of a wet site is is almost ideal for uh, some of these plants. So again, using shrubs is wonderful because you get some of these plants have berries, some of them have flowers, fall color, and of course some of them are evergreen. So it can be... You can make your wet boggy garden or your rain garden a beautiful area. Now, of course, you may just want to get a little simplified and use some ground covers. And there are some good ground covers that can handle this wet, moist area. Ajuga is definitely number one. Mondo grasses and liriopes, they really don't have a problem. Um, There is a strange begonia. It's called strawberry begonia. Uh, It's hardy. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, but it would be a good candidate. It does have a nice flower. Now, some um, some herbaceous perennials. So these plants are going to die to the ground in the winter, but come right back up in the springtime. This is probably where the real fun happens because you can get all kinds of colors and flowers throughout spring, uh, summer, and into fall. 
I do like canna lilies, and canna lilies do not mind being planted on the edge of a pond or somewhere where there's wet soil. So be sure to look into canna lilies. We've got a bunch at the nursery of different varieties, different colored leaves, different blossoms, of course. They're tall and upright. They are definitely a showstopper when they're blooming in the summer. Uh, St. John's wort. We've got a creeping crawly St. John's wort that I just love. Of course, you get yellow blossoms in the summer and blue-green foliage all year long. We've talked about St. John's wort on this program before, but it would be a good candidate for your boggy site or, or rain garden. Now, ironweed is a native plant that blooms very late in the summer, nearly as really fall, but it has these large plumes of purple flowers. Now, I mentioned ironweed because it does very well well, in the situation we're talking about, but also because it's such a late bloomer, you will be providing um, food for pollinators right before winter gets uh, hits. And that means that you're helping them get their last little bit of life cycle done and accomplished, giving them a bit of health and nutrition by having some of these late blooming um perennial plants. Now, don't forget about swamp milkweed. Everybody loves swamp milkweed because, of course, well, milkweeds in general, milkweeds in general are going to give food for the baby caterpillars of monarch butterflies. So swamp milkweed can handle wet soil. It doesn't have to have it, but it can handle these long periods of, 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 of moisture, and then it could dry out a little bit. But regardless, they're going to bloom in the summer, and they do have an attractive pink blossom, but they are most attractive because they're going to feed baby monarchs. Black-eyed Susan, we've talked about her a lot, but she could be a good contender, as well as Joe Pieweed. Now, Joe Pieweed is a large, robust perennial, so definitely one of the showstoppers, but it blooms super late, like ironweed, with these nice sort of pinky, lavender-colored blossoms. There's different varieties now, different cultivars of Joe Pieweed. Some of them have variegated foliage, and some of them are short and stocky. So you may check out your local garden center or nursery and see what's available with Joe Pie. But again, another late-blooming perennial that is going to uh, feed feed uh, those pollinators at the end of the year. Don't forget about ferns. Cinnamon fern and royal fern are both in a very similar group of ferns. They are quite large and robust ferns, uh, but they can handle... Mm, you know, the shady side, if you did have sort of a shady rain garden. And of course, some of these ferns actually can handle a good bit of sun. And ornamental grasses, probably one of the best ornamental grasses. We're running out of time here. But one of the best ornamental grasses you're going to find for the planting in a wet, boggy site or even um, in the rain garden is sea oats, uh, river oats. It's the same plant, sea oats, river oats. It's called chasmanthium. Uh, we do grow them at the nursery. They do reseed. I will tell you that. I love this grass, but they do reseed, so it may become a bit aggressive. It's not invasive. They're native here to the southeast. But regardless, if you need some ornamental grasses, the sea oats would be a good choice. Well, gang, I hope today we've answered Zach's question with some good plants for boggy sites, but also I wanted to introduce you to the world of rain gardening so you can capture all that runoff that your house and roof provide and put it to use in the landscape and let the plants and biology clean it up. For WRWH 93.9 FM, my name's Nathan Wilson, and I hope you stay well and grow well. Give it that go. See you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at 
NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show.